We will begin in the first epistle of the Thessalonians. I think we did this lesson about 20 years ago, so it's time we do it again. Before we get into the epistle, let us consider some things. This epistle was one of the earliest writings of Paul at about A.D. 51. Remember, he, he lived until about 68 or so, A.D. him and Peter. So this is one of his pioneering Gentile areas that he went to as he ministered to the Gentiles. Thessalonica, it was a capital and a foremost city and harbor of the Roman province of Macedonia. It's located today, the area would be on the east side of Greece at the northernmost part of the Aegean Sea and between Greece and Turkey at the farthest north. But further down, a couple of hundred miles, there was the city of Corinth, where he wrote to the Corinthians, had lots of trouble with them. And across the sea into now what we know as Turkey were the seven churches of the book of Revelation mentioned there. So Thessalonica, it had about 200,000 people in the metro, and it was a large, strong Jewish community that gave Paul and them a lot of trouble. We'll see, he, he basically cut his mission there short because of their persecution and malice toward him. So he's checking back on them, and what happened within 10 months or a year, he heard about them, and he was very impressed with them. They say this was one of the purest churches. He didn't have as much trouble. They were very compliant, and they listened to his message, and they had a good reputation in all the area. They were hearing of their steadfastness and their Christianity. The Jews did not like them being a part of this, what they considered a sect, Christianity. They didn't care much for Gentiles. That's why God, one of the reasons the Lord rejected them. They were supposed to be a light to the world, and they hated everybody. And they were arrogant and self-sufficient, thought they were special. Well, they found out after a few centuries, God got tired of it, and he rejected them as a whole. He cut them off. They were not the chosen anymore, only the elect, those who came to the Lord. They have no special standing with God. They're actually still under God's wrath. Even today, as the nation comes together, he's not breathing to them. Bone come, bones come. He's preparing things, but they're still as lost as any Gentile. They're still under God's wrath if they do not come to the Lord. They were given many privileges And he said he would scatter them among the nations and that he would uh, gather them. But Ezekiel tells us he's not breathing to them yet, which means they've not been born again, which they will at the end of the tribulation period when the Antichrist kills most of the Jews in Israel. He will come at the right time and save the remnant and what's left, which will be few. They will turn to the Lord at that time. And the Lord, again, will establish Israel, chief among the nations. But right now, they're not special. There is no fellowship of Jews and Christians you hear on television. They're not chosen. They don't have no special standing with God. They have to come to the Lord Jesus like every Gentile does. 
They don't have no special standing. They have been cut off and rejected, and the Gentiles are being grafted in until the fullness of the Gentiles come. And then when he's ready to start again dealing with them, he will fulfill his promises to the prophets and to Abraham. But as Jesus is speaking on one of his parables and talking, he said they shall come, speaking of the Gentiles, from the east and the north and the west into the kingdom. He said, but the children of the kingdom will be cast out of darkness. The children of the kingdom were the Jews that rejected. And he said, though they were numbered as the stars over the generation, he said only a few will be saved, a remnant. That word is only used of Jews. It's not used of Christians. So he's not forsaken all of them. Those Paul and the 12 apostles, all of them, they were Jews. The first six and eight years, there were only Jewish Christians. And they laid the foundation for the church. And Paul went to the Gentiles. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So these were the elect chosen by the Lord. The others are enemies of the gospel, uh, what Paul tells us. And they sure gave him a lot of trouble too, uh, everywhere he went. So if this was a large Jewish community, they'd already had instructions from Jerusalem to give him trouble. Remember everywhere he went, the Jews were stirred up and the Judaizers and others to try to thought and hinder him in whatever he did. That may have been part of his stake in the flesh, a continual strong persecution all the time. And so they it said it was a messenger of Satan. So you can see they may have been a messenger of Satan. The Lord said their father was the devil. So, okay. So we see they were persecuting the Gentiles that tried to come to the Lord. They didn't like that. They hated the Gentiles. They always did. They were hoping the Lord would come back. Peter and them thought he was going to set up, the Messiah was going to destroy the Romans and set up Israel again. And remember, he asked him, when will we restore Israel? And the Lord said, that's none of your business. He said, you follow me. After Pentecost, the apostles never mentioned that word again because the Lord began to show them there's a new Jerusalem. There's a new Israel. It's the church. They're the holy royal priesthood. And the Jewish system and religion is abolished. doesn't apply. But like I say, during the tribulation period, he will save a remnant and the nation, the very few of them, will come and see the Lord and perceive that Jesus was the Messiah. Said so they will mourn over him. Okay? So anyway... He sends some, go back and check on them after 10 months or a year. And he was very impressed with their growth and with their acceptance of the message as an infant church and a Gentile church. They were doing very well. As you read many of the epistles, they didn't give him trouble like the Corinthians did in some of the other places. He spent much of Corinth, uh, at Corinth correcting and rebuking and doing things. He didn't have to with this one. They complied and listened to his message, and the Holy Spirit moved in signs and wonders and conviction and converted them, and they were known later all around of their loyalty and who they were. Even the Judean church was impressed with them, okay? 
So he was very impressed at their growth and steadfastness, even among the Jewish malice. So he will clarify in this epistle some beliefs, and he will allude to in all five chapters about the coming of the Lord and what's going to happen. They were puzzled about the Lord's coming, what would happen to the ones who had already died. So he was going to explain some of these things and clarify certain things. But they had no major troubles, which a lot of the other churches did. They say that was his pure church. Many of the scholars say that was his purest church that he went to the Gentiles over. Okay, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they were with him when he was being an apostle and evangelizing that area. They were his workers and co-workers with him. So he's addressing the church at Thessalonica or the Thessalonians, and he said, that are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Some translations add grace and peace and repeat the God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's sufficient here that what he's telling us, okay? So he states they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, stating that they are in the vine, they're in Jesus, and the Father is over all of them, and they belong to him. So this is a form of greeting, but he often uses grace and peace in greeting many churches. As we've said before, most heretics and those who twist scripture, they only use grace as unmerited favor. The reason they do that is so they can license their sin and they don't have to answer to God for any spiritual works or obedience. But that is not the translation only. It's not only everything that God does, initiates, he didn't have to do it. So that's what's merited. But when they came to the Lord, that grace he gives, when he's Paul's talking about grace then, he's talking about strength and power from the Lord to live Christianity. And that is merited through Christ. So it's not unmerited to us because we are in Christ. He is an obligation to us. He's our master and we're his, supposed to be his love slave. So we have a right to it as a part of the covenant that he's made with us. So if we're in Christ, we don't have to worry about keep saying, oh, I'm so much a miserable person and I don't deserve anything. Well, people like that that talk are usually licensed to sin people. They like to excuse their sins and think that grace will cover it all, this irresistible grace. Well, they're going to find irresistible hell is going to be against their sins. And there is going to be that. There is no grace like that in the scripture. Okay, they twist the scripture. As Peter said, they twist all of Paul's writings as they do all scripture. So Peter called Paul's epistles scripture. And he said they will twist it to their own destruction. And that's what we've had today. Much of the grace and faith teaching is false. Doesn't produce holiness and righteousness. Doesn't produce practical holiness. So a person could talk about their position in Christ all they want. They're living in gross sin. They're not in Christ. Or they're going to be cut off real quickly. So even Paul, naming 20-some sins, and he's sure to say, and the such like, in case I miss any. That's what he's saying. 
if you practice, and he names the sin, he said, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He doesn't talk about whether you've seen the Lord or he visits you every night and tells you how wonderful you are. You know, all that don't mean nothing. And at the judgment seat, the majority of professing Christians will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll call them cursed of my father, lawlessness. He don't challenge their belief that he's Lord. He said, you are workers of lawlessness. All of God's judgments are according to works, not necessarily belief, because if you've got the right kind of belief, you'll produce the works. Otherwise, you just have mental assent, and the devil believes and knows that Jesus is the Lord, but they don't submit to him willingly as Lord or follow him, nor can they anymore. So, when we see God's grace mentioned in these greetings, we're thinking his strength and his power because Christ is in us to live the Christian life. It cannot be done on the human side alone. Everything that's spiritual, everything that deals with the body of Christ, there's the divine side and the human side. You never find either or. And when people talk about the excessive grace of God, and I hear this statement a lot, and it's false also. People do terrible things that happen to them, and, and they say, but by the grace of God, I'll be that. No. God gives you commands under every covenant, and you can obey them. And he'll give you more strength. But they appear, well, if he didn't help me, they stress too much that to be a sinner, and yet God holds them responsible. He can only judge people that's responsible that have uh, some law of conscience or word given to them. Without the law, without the word, uh, he doesn't impute judgment against people. He can't because it would not be just to do it. People who consider that he predestines and elects people, they are devils. They are given a message from the devil. They make God to be a monster. He's fair in all of his dealings. And even though we are born with the sinful nature, he holds not that against us. It's the actions of the will, not putting it down or resisting it or entertaining the nature. He even told Cain, corrected him, be careful. And it lies at your door like a beast and you subdue it. And Cain could have done it, but he did not. He killed his brother. So God held him responsible he could not have killed his brother if he wanted to. So under different systems, different things were required. So God cannot bring into judgment infants and children know no right from wrong or mentally deranged people. And ultimately, Christ's blood will cover everything like that. Even Gentiles that had not the gospel and have not the gospel, they live a morally upright life and try to and understand there is a supreme being, not other gods, which they conscience will tell them that if they follow it. Cornelius was a righteous Gentile, and the angel of God told him that. And so he was given the message of the gospel. But he was already in righteous standing with God in the light that he had. Now, if he rejected Peter's message, that would be different. He would then be a sinner because much is given, much is required. Okay, so what we see is they are in God, they are in Christ, and when he addresses them, he wants to give them, when he speaks of grace and peace, peace and joy and righteousness 
It says, is the kingdom of God. It's the spiritual side of the kingdom. It's not eating and drinking and outward things. It's an inward thing. So if they follow the Lord and are spiritual, then righteousness and joy and peace is there. And therefore, he dresses them of grace and peace. And Ephesians, he said, may it be multiplied. So there's an increase, a growth in this way of grace, in this maturing. People are given things in measure. Gifts and graces at times is given in different measures, some of them according to how you deal with what you've been given. If you are faithful in a little, you'll be given more. If you're not, even what you have will be taken from you. See, stewardship. God requires certain things. He gives more grace, and then he requires more judgment if it's not responded to. This is the justice and holiness of God. So he will be gracious. God is gracious to everybody. He's already told us that under every covenant. It's not his will that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of God, New Testament and Old. So those who say they're predestined or elected as an individual, they're in error. Only the body of Christ as a whole, the church, the gates of hell will not prevail. Only takes two and three to make the church. Uh Why? Because they could be, he's divine. And Paul tells us, and we'll get back to later, he said, you Gentiles are being grafted in where I cut most of the rebellious Jews off. He said, but if you don't abide in his goodness, you'll be cut off also. But the tree, the vine, the olive tree stands. But the branches can be added and taken away. So he's predestined the body of Christ, the church. That's the promise that will prevail. Okay? They are predestined, pre-planned. God set up the plan and everything. But people can get in or get out. It's up to them as an individual. So if you're chosen, you can be unchosen. Uh huh. So we are called the called, the chosen, and the faithful. If you're not faithful, you will not be chosen at Judgment Day. You can be called and given the message, accept the Lord. But if you don't bear fruit and you don't continue in the Lord, you will not be called the chosen. So a lot of those teachings are heretical and they're false teachings. Okay, as if. God has chosen centuries ago who he's going to save and who he's not. That makes him a monster. Scripture does not put him in that category. That's people's perversion, and the devil's perverted their brains. They may be intellectually, but like I said, knowledge will increase. But he said they'll be ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of truth. He will confound the intellectual and the wise because of their arrogance and their disobedience. He'll see to it. Jesus said, I thank you, Father. You've hidden these things from the worldly wise, and you revealed it to the simple. So spiritual things are not learned by just reading the Bible, just giving people information. That don't make them enlightened. Spiritual enlightenment comes by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration comes by the Holy Spirit. It's not lip service. Like I say, all the multitudes that say, Lord, Lord, he's going to say, I never knew you. He never claimed them as his. They thought he was his. And they talked about all their good works and their ministry. But see, whatever they were doing, good or bad, they were lawless. 
they were not walking properly before the Lord. They were sinning against him. And they thought a little good would measure out. I've heard some people say that. They do a lot of good, these movie stars, because they're hoping that when they stand in judgment, God will consider that against all the evil they're doing. They think it's going to be weighed, but it's not. You're guilty of one part of the law. You're guilty of the whole law. So a person abides in gross sin, and he knows it's gross. doesn't matter what good he does. It is canceled. It's not accepted. The sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. He cares for nothing from them if they do not conform to what he wants. That's why we have a lot of misled people and a lot of false shepherds pacifying them to make them feel good, okay? So anyway, he wants grace and peace. And like I say, Paul, when he wanted the stake in the flesh removed, he prayed three times seriously. They weren't just a little prayer. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect and weak. Christ told Paul his grace was strength. He didn't say it was unmerited favor. He said, it's strength in your weakness. And that's what all Christians have to have at time. We have to have the strengthening and the armor of Christ and the help of the Spirit to overcome certain things. So grace that is not strength is wasted. Uh-huh. It's wasted. So God has already been gracious. When he appeared to Moses, he said, I'm loving kindness and gracious. And he also said, by no means clearing the guilty. His grace does not erase justice. It finds a way to satisfy it. And when people repent and confess, then God can deal with it. But a lot of people just confess, but they don't stop their sinning, and they don't really follow the Lord. So their confession is merely lip service. And as the Lord said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I tell you? He does not recognize that person. And that's the majority of what's known as Christianity. Okay? So we have, because of what Christ has done, uh, we can come with courage or boldly into the throne of grace. Every Christian has the potential higher than John the Baptist or any prophet of the Old Testament because Christ was not in them the way he is in the New Covenant. And Jesus said the person that's least in the kingdom of Christ is greater than them. So we can go in in prayer as a high priest could only do once a year behind the veil. And with boldness, we don't have to go in there with fear and trembling. Only ones that went there with fear and trembling is those who's practicing sin. And they knew they were not right with God. But when we are right with the Lord, uh, we have the assurance. That's where faith comes from, that the Lord hears us. And he answers what's in his will and what's offered in faith, okay? So we have that boldness that we are proved of God and we do not have to have the wrong kind of fear in his presence. And that's because of the Lord Jesus is paying the price for us. Uh-huh. But we have a right. And if we go before the Father, we can tell him, I don't come on my own and I'm not looking for a merited favor. Christ did it for me. And we have assurance. And he'll recognize that. So we are favored and treated as family and friends. We're not treated simply as a servant or a bond servant, which a Christian really is. Uh, if he understands 
scripture, Paul says we're his slaves. We're his children. He said, if you're free and you're not a slave in the Roman world, he said, you're the Lord's slave. And he said, and if you're a slave, you're free before the Lord. He's saying God's overall providence and working, you answer to the Lord. And he's able to change your providence if it suits him. But many people lived and died slaves, and they were required to be faithful and honest and serve their masters. A lot of people don't like hearing that. Well, they don't like the word of God anyway. Uh, many of them speak of independence. Independence is rebellion. Lucifer, the first thing he did when he became independent was selfish, self-centered. Uh -huh. Having slaves is better than having anarchy. People get too much independence that's a freedom and license to sin. It'll bring God's judgment. No one's independent to himself. There's authorities in the government and the body of Christ, and we answer to it. And if a person doesn't, he's rebellious and he's an anarchy, uh -huh. this principle. So it'd be far better to have a good master and you be a slave than you be out doing wickedness in the world because of your freedom, okay? So God is not necessarily into democracy. He doesn't really care what kind of government it is if they uphold goodness and keep things in society from being corrupt and punish murderers and those who are openly rebellious. Government is supposed to do that. doesn't matter what kind of government it is. And he told the Christians, you have nothing to fear. They talk about in general, not when we have a demonic person like Stalin or Hitler. These are exceptions. He said, what do you have to fear if you do good? He said, but if you don't, you should fear. For they are ministers of God for justice and to avenge you. And they don't bear the sword. The sword, Roman sword, was for putting to death. It was not for spanking anybody. And he was saying that's what it's for. He says, and God intended it that excessive wicked people be put to death in a society that cannot behave themselves. People don't like, well, Jesus, well, he said, oh, and oh, that should not kill. Well, see, they're perverted people who don't know Scripture. Actually, go back to the translation. The word is murder, thou shalt not murder. And if you read a little further, God commanded through Moses, and him that murders shall be put to death. He shall be killed. So murder is the unlawful putting to death of someone. Killing is justice being performed on the wicked. And it's still in effect, even if all the nations of the world do away with it, well, that's why we have more wickedness. They won't do what they're supposed to be doing. And so they reap from it in the long run, okay? So we are favored, and we are treated as God's family and friends. And we'll talk about that later, what it means to be the friend of the Lord. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, Okay. They prayed for it because they ministered and established this church. And Paul was saying, we're praying for you constantly, and we've heard about your progress in Christ. And they wanted to come back again as soon as he could. But he was driven out of the area by the malice of the Jews. So he had to cut his mission short at that time. And like we say, the Jews always tried to stir up trouble for him. But he was so impressed that they had to leave. See, he had planned to stay long and to disciple them further and mature them, but it seemed like they were doing pretty good. 
They were taken seriously and the Lord was gracing them. So when Paul went to certain places, some places he stayed a couple of years. He didn't get people saved and run off and leave them. Getting them saved is just entering the kingdom. You have to make disciples and until some are able to be mature and begin to be elders and ministers for the local fellowship. But if you get a bunch of people saved and you leave, half of them going to die in the middle of the week. But see, if you believe once saved, always say, well, you don't care. At least they're saved. You're a stupid fool is what the Lord would call you. James would call you a fool along with Paul. Babies die if they're not taken care of properly. Oh, there's always the exception that will move on. But as a whole, that's what the ministries of the church is for, the building up and the maturing of the Christian. And people are gifted more to do this and can do it better than anybody else. So we need to understand this. So he's happy with this. And he says, constantly we are bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God and the Father. So he's saying we always remember you and your work of faith, okay? and labor of love, okay? You endure. You have a hope in Christ's return, and you endure with him. That's part of perseverance. So faith alone is not taught by Paul. It's taught by heretics that won't excuse themselves and feel they don't have to do anything, that God's grace will take care of it all. It will not. The scriptures never points that we are saved by faith alone. doesn't say that. Luther may have said it, but he, he may have been a heretic. But James made it clear. He said, a man is not saved by faith alone, but by works. So he's talking about spiritual works. If you don't bear fruit, if you're not obedient, then you don't have the proper faith. And your faith and mental assent is not going to move God. See, a tree is known by what kind of fruit it bears. So if you don't bear the fruits of righteousness, you're not righteous. Very plain and simple, okay? So faith alone is not taught by Paul. Faith must work. And as we see another scripture says, it must work by love. So again, we see faith and love and hope go together. And the work or the labor is by love. So we see labor and work, they mean the same thing. They're talking about something spiritual. They're not talking about pharisaical works. They're not talking about Roman Catholic systems of indulgences and privileges and ceremonies. I know that means nothing. When the scripture speaks of works, he's talking about spiritual work. If Christ is in you, I want to see the proof, James said. He said, I'll prove to you my faith by my works. And he's talking about spiritual works. He wasn't talking about his own works. God gifts and strengthens and gives us the ability to rise above sin and the world. That's what the works are. And then ministry and everything else falls under this. But the ones, the majority of the professing Christians that are rejected by the Lord, they were talking about their ministries. But Lord, didn't we prophesy? And didn't we do this? He didn't even answer them whether they did or not. He said, you're workers of lawlessness. All judgments are according to works, not belief. It's because they're proper works, you'd have the proper belief. Uh-huh. 
So just confessing Jesus with your lip don't prove anything, okay? So he's saying, uh, we remember this. You have faith with works. You prove it by your fruitfulness and your love. And so James was in perfect agreement with him. Paul and James were not in no conflict. They expressed the same truths different ways. Faith and mental assent or belief alone is dead. You hear a lot of people just confess Jesus with your mouth. That's only part of it. If your heart hasn't been changed, it's lip service. It don't mean nothing. Same as baptism. Baptism means nothing if you haven't changed in your heart. So when he tells them to confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. If you read the whole context, it's because your heart has been changed. You've repented and turned to the Lord and confessed him and trust him. And you are acknowledging that. It doesn't work the other way around. Just confess the Lord. Don't worry about anything. Just Well, you better worry because if you've not repented, your confession is vain. If you haven't decided to turn to the Lord and follow him, all your confessions of sin uh, mean nothing, and they're not forgiven, okay? Lots of false heresies out there today, more so than the truth, which is rare. Proverbs says, buy the truth and sell it not. And so we need to hold to that which is true, okay? So we're seeing then faith and mental assent mean nothing, if there isn't a follow-up. If faith has no fruit, has no spiritual work, has no obedience, it's false and useless. So that's why they were saying, Lord, Lord. They believed he died on a cross. They believed he resurrected. They believed they were Christians. They were not. They were denominational system people. Religion was a cloak to them. They did enough religion so they could live their own life and be happy. That's what a lot of the prosperity people do. Prosperity, or most of the prosperity doctrine is covetousness. And covetousness will send you to hell. Because Paul said, don't you know, covetousness is idolatry. Oh, yeah, materialism and money and the love of money and all is covetousness. It's not prosperity. It's prosperity to the one who has the ministry of giving. It's not for bloating on your luxuries and your, I mean, each time he talks about your riches, he said, you're given this. He said, for ministry, you don't see no self-indulgence. God don't care in moderation what people use their money. But people are not going to buy the Lord off with a tithe and do as they please with the rest. That we prove they reveal their true heart. Yeah, a lot of people professing Christians love to give the Lord the tithe so they can waste the 90%. But they're going to answer to the Lord for it because they're stewards of everything. And if they have abundance, they should be helping people have a ministry of giving and and being things like that. That would prove they're Christians. The other doesn't prove anything. Oh, we have ministers today who've got hundreds of millions of dollars, and they think they're going to sit on the left and right hand of Christ. They're not going to make it into the kingdom. That money, as the man, remember the Lord talked about the man in his parable that all these Wealth in the barns. He said, what shall I do? Well, I will tear my barns down and build bigger barns. I'll store more. And he said he doesn't know that his soul is required of him. And then who's it going to belong to? See, it means it's nothing. 
Like Jesus said, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul, what is it profiting you? So that's what happens with people who profess to be Christians and they hoard millions of dollars for themselves and their families. They don't fool nobody that knows the truth. But most of their followers agree because they want to be rich. And Paul warns, never gives one positive thing about being rich. He least seven times he speaks in his epistles of the warning if you find yourself rich. And he said, you better be rich in good works and you better lay a foundation for eternal life. Implying if you do not use the monies well and you're rich, you may not have eternal life. See? Oh, but we say by grace. Well, that's just the beginning. And Paul said, we live by faith like Abraham did. It wasn't a one-time act. And you live trusting the Lord and obeying him. Abraham obeyed and trusted. He didn't just say, oh, I believe it. It did nothing. He conformed whatever God told him to do. And when he completed that, that's when the promises came into effect. Not when he mentally believed, but he acted on these things. That's what it was counted to him for righteousness, okay? The grace of God, as we say, is not merely unmerited favor, which it is not to the real Christian. Christ has merited it for us. The grace of God gives power for people to do his will and to live in the kingdom. That's why we're given the spirit of Christ to come alongside and help us. But you notice he's the helper He's not the doer, okay? So he does not do these things without our consent and help. Okay, Let's take a break here.